Shabbat shalom. What a pleasure to welcome back the elite soldiers of the Israel National Defense College under the command of Major General Itai. Welcome to us. It's a great joy to see you again. I want you to know that our guests are the very best of Israel. Born to lead, trained to command, and willing and able to shoulder the yoke of defending the Jewish state. They are among a select group who place themselves on the front lines for the sake of liberty, dignity, and security. They were handpicked by the chief of staff of the IDF to participate in this year-long training away from their field commands, where they have the time and the space to think, to study, Anything and everything that might be relevant for their leadership roles, including learning more about American Jewry and American society, which is what brings them here to us on Shabbat. Ruchim Abayim, welcome. You are among family here. After Kabbalah Shabbat, we look forward to sharing dinner together. How good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together. You'll be welcomed downstairs by the president of our synagogue, Mark Bernstein, for the record. We elected our leader in one vote. <laughs> we didn't have to go back to the members of the congregation three months later and for another vote. I'm just saying. I want our guests and to remind our congregants, this synagogue is not neutral on Israel. That's not our job. Let others, cerebral scholars, diligent diplomats, polished professors, let them be neutral. Here, we are passionate partisans. We're not uncritical. An uncritical Jew is a contradiction in terms. There never was such a creature, and there never will be. The members of this congregation differ on the day-to-day -day politics and policies of the Israeli government. But then again, they also differ on the day-to-day -day policies of the American government. And and truth be told, they differ on the synagogue's daily decisions as well. I know because they tell me. We are a highly contentious people. We've always been this way. We like ourselves this way. We have many unresolved problems in the Jewish world of high moral, political, and religious consequence. But as much as we argue with each other, as much as we lose patience one with the other, this synagogue will always stand by Israel's side, no matter what. We will never abandon Israel or give aid and comfort to Israel's enemies. We are bound to each other. 
not uncritically, but unconditionally, kol Yisrael arevin ze baze. All Jews are responsible one for the other. The fate of one Jew is the fate of all Jews. Whether we live in Brussels, Budapest, Berlin, Buenos Aires, Barcelona, or Beersheba, we feel the same insecurity, the same loss, and the same pain of Jews attacked in Pittsburgh, Paris, or Poway, as we do when our brothers and sisters run to the bomb shelters in Petah Tikva or Pardes Chana. There's a concept in Judaism called Hakarata Tov, recognizing the good. It is good and proper from time to time to note how far we have come and to give thanks for our blessings. It is good and proper from time to time to cease the incessant arguing and to acknowledge the good, especially on Shabbat. A hundred generations have passed since the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And almost all of those generations considered the restoration of Jewish sovereignty to be a distant dream. It was so inconceivable that 1,827 years later, when Theodor Herzl announced the birth of the Zionist movement, most Jews considered that announcement ipso facto evidence that Herzl was a madman. Look at us now. The Jewish state is on the cutting and leading edge of so many human endeavors. Technology, biotechnology, medicine, science, agriculture, water desalinization and recycling, computer hardware and especially software, security systems, art, theater, television, 5,000 people went to see the cast of Stissel. It sold out in one day. Movies, music, law, literature, fashion, wineries, and other culinary delights. I remember the days that even to ask, where can I get good food, was to label you an unserious person in Israel. Remember those days on those LL flights when the flight attendant would ask, do you want dinner? And the passenger would respond, what are my choices? And the attendant would say, yes or no. <laughs> Today, tourists flock to Israel just to eat for a week at Israeli restaurants. Cooking is a macho thing now. If you can't whip up some amazing Shabbat lunch for 20 of your friends, somehow you're not really a real man. <laughs> Israel's population is 10 times what it was on the day of its birth in May 1948. Its economy is many times larger than that, among the top 20 economies in the world. Israeli universities are world class, churning out leading inventors, scientists, doctors, philosophers, authors, engineers and academics. 
You might hear a lot about people boycotting Israel. It gets disproportionate attention, including from us. But more tourists are flocking to Israel than ever before. The country's tourism infrastructure strains to keep pace. And all of this, with one hand tied behind Israel's back, spending inordinately disproportional amounts of national treasure on security, withstanding and enduring the searing pain of human loss. 25,000 Israelis have laid down their lives on the altar of freedom. Israel is now much more secure, itself an enormous accomplishment. And this greater sense of well-being allows Israelis to gaze more comprehensively at the outside world. Today, Israelis are among the first on the scene of natural or human-made disasters. They often provide the best of all the first aid. We've met some of these first responders, those of you who have been on our Israel missions. They have also visited our synagogues. Babies in disaster zones are named Israel, their parents grateful to the Israeli doctors who delivered their children. This Jewish humanitarian impulse even extends to Israel's enemies. The Israel Defense Forces established a field hospital on the Syrian border. On our Israel missions, we meet the IDF officers who set it up and the Israeli doctors who treated the suffering. Thousands of wounded civilians who were taught from childhood to hate Jews, including many hundreds of Syrian children, have been restored to health by Israeli doctors. They described to us, those doctors, how disoriented some of the patients were to wake up in an Israeli hospital, treated at no cost to them by the best doctors in the world, who they thought were their sworn enemies. And all of this progress is just beginning. Imagine what Israel will look like by the end of the 21st century. Do you know that 88% of Israelis, practically everyone, claim to be satisfied with their lives? With all the problems? Israel is among the happiest countries in the world. It turns out that happiness, existential satisfaction, is not only or even primarily a function of economic prosperity or professional success. It's also about purpose, motivation, collective effort, history, opportunity, a sense of destiny. This is Israel's most important accomplishment. Israel has restored the national spirit of the Jewish people and given hope to all persecuted peoples that they too can survive and thrive. It is not only that Israel is a place of refuge for millions of persecuted Jews. If it was only that, Dayenu, that would have been enough. If all Israel did was to provide a home for what is probably now the majority of the world's Jews, Dayenu, 
That too would have been enough. But Israel is much more. Israel is one of the great wonders of the world. The engine for the recreation and the restoration of the national home and the national spirit of the Jewish people. Israel testifies to the Jewish people's indomitable will to survive. Israel is a testament of hope over despair. Its very existence says to the world, if the Jews can do it, the Jews, other people can hope to dare as well. This is the reason that Israel's creation carries such universal significance. It is a triumph of the human spirit. Zionism inspired a whole people to awaken from its national passivity and to seize its own destiny. As such, Israel says to all persecuted, oppressed, and demoralized people, you can do it too. Lift up the banner of freedom and restore yourself. The return of the Jews to Zion is a miracle of biblical proportions, the likes of which have not been seen in the whole history of civilization. Our people has raised Zion from desolation and made it live again. Et hazamir higia vekolator nishma ba'artzenu. The time for singing has come, and the song of the turtle dove is heard throughout the land. The green figs weigh heavy on the fig trees. The vines in blossom give off their fragrance. Vehitifu he'arim asis, titmogagna. The mountains drip wine, and the hills wave with grain. This week's Parsha, Baha'alotcha, describes the Israelites finally leaving the foothills of Mount Sinai. After 13 months and 20 days, Moses assembled the people for the march to the Promised Land. One can imagine the electric excitement running as a current through the community. The Midrash explains that the people had spent so much time absorbing the laws and responsibilities and commandments at Sinai that they marched for three days nonstop to avoid God calling them back for yet more halacha and more study. Like school children, say the rabbis, who at the end of the day run from school without stopping so that the headmaster doesn't call them back for more homework. Moses organized the camp tribe by tribe. And as if this Parsha was intended for this precise week where our friends from the INDC are with us, the Torah emphasizes that each tribe was headed by its military commander. At the head marched the tribe of Judah. The command of its troops was under Nachshon ben Aminadav. Ve'al tzva mateh b'nei Zvulun Eliyav ben Cholon. And in the command of the tribe of Zvulun, Eliyav, the son of Cholon. And thus, tribe by tribe, 
The names of these commanders are forever enshrined in the annals of Jewish civilization. There can be no national existence without men and women devoted to protecting the people. There can be no self-determination without an army filled with determined selves. But here's the thing about the Jews. At the center of this march, protected by these legendary commanders, was the menorah. The Parsha begins this way. And God said to Moses, say to Aaron, when you mount the lamps, let the seven lamps give light at the front of the menorah. The purpose of this march to the promised land, the whole point of Jewish existence, is to give light, or la goyim, to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves through you. We need an army, but our purpose is haganah, defense, not violence for its own sake, or subjugation, or national ego, or expansion. Never, never in the history of the Jews did we want to be an empire. The menorah was symbolic of our ambition to create a more peaceful world, a world filled with light. Ultimately, the menorah became the symbol of Jewish sovereignty. The symbol of the modern state of Israel is the temple menorah. It was a magnificent creation made of zahav tahor, pure gold. Scholars tell us that pure gold was the highest grade, having undergone extra steps in the refining process to free it from any impurity. Pure gold symbolizes the Jewish dream of refinement and purity, a refinement of the body of the Jewish people so that together we may aspire toward the purity of God's word. When the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple in the year 70 CE, they carried this menorah back to Rome. It was their way of announcing the end of Jewish sovereignty. The Jews would soon disappear from the pages of history like all the other nations that the Romans subjugated and defeated. The Romans were convinced of that. Titus was the Roman general who finally conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. To honor Titus, a special arch was built in Rome. It's now called the Arch of Titus. You can still walk through it. If you cross the street from the Colosseum and proceed several hundred meters into the Roman Forum, and on the bottom of the Arch of Titus is a frieze depicting Roman soldiers carrying this menorah from the temple. 
The next time you're in Rome, bear in mind that the history of our people figures prominently in Roman lore. The last known resting place of the temple menorah was Rome. In the year 71, the emperor Vespasian arranged a victory march in Rome to honor his son Titus and to parade in front of the Roman people the spoils of war. There's a surviving eyewitness account of this parade. Josephus, the former Jewish military commander who became the chronicler of the Jewish war, witnessed the parade firsthand and described in grandeur and in detail its magnificence. Towards the end of his account, Josephus writes, most of the spoils that were carried were heaped up indiscriminately, but more prominent than all the rest were those captured in the temple in Jerusalem. A golden table weighing several hundred weight and a menorah similarly made of gold. The menorah, the very symbol of Jewish independence and self-determination was in bondage at its holding site, what the Romans perversely called the Temple of Peace. This Temple of Peace was funded through the plunder of war brought back from the war on the Jews. One wall of that temple still stands. That was it. The end of the line for this people. It was good while it lasted, but nothing lasts forever. The kingdom survived for a thousand years, from King Saul to Shimon bar Giora, one of the three main commanders of Jerusalem who, according to Josephus, was shackled and dragged in front of the Roman crowds and executed to the delirious delight of the masses. But something astonishing and unprecedented occurred. The Roman Empire that was destined to rule the earth forever crumbled into dust and rubble. The Jewish people lives on. The menorah has been rekindled. It burns tamid, eternally, protected now by the men and women with us here this Shabbat, the present-day soldiers of the State of Israel. It is the Romans who are no more. If only Vespasian, if only Titus could see the eternal flame, the people they could not destroy, back in the land of Israel, striving to be a light to the nations and to do what is just and right in the sight of God. May the menorah burn with eternal light and may the flame of our people never go out.